Section 1 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr the present-day trial of the Bible. It may be a suitable opening for these papers to consider how the case stands today with the trial of the Bible as the written word of God. There are misconceptions and alarms prevalent which a calm outlook on the actual situation may do something to remove and abate. I would fain speak a word to remove the disquietude under which many labor, as if Christianity and God's word were at length about to be engulfed in the encroaching waves of skepticism. There is conflict enough, but no such consequence as this is going to follow. The word of the Lord, the psalm says, is tried. Psalm 18, verse 30. Again, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, purified seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. The Bible least of all need shrink from this ordeal of trial, nor does it. God never asks His people to put their trust in, or stay their souls on, that which cannot endure the most searching fires of trial. The supremest test, of course, to which the Bible can be put is the test of experience. Does its message commend itself on personal trial to mind and conscience and heart? Does it verify itself when accepted in heart and life? Does it prove able to bear the weight which innumerable souls through long ages have rested on it? Does it show itself historically possessed of the properties which, as an inspired word, are claimed for it? Those, for example, in Psalm 19, 7 and 8, of converting the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes, or in Second Timothy 3, verses 15 and 17, of making wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, of being profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Quote, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. Unquote. He that has this witness of God's word in himself, 1 John 5, verse 10, need fear no assault from without. We move here in a region high as heaven itself, above all debatable questions of science and criticism. It is not this test of experience, however, I mean to dwell on at present though it will often recur in our discussions, 
but rather the outward trial to which the Bible in our day is exposed, the trial of opposition, of conflict, of controversy. Part 1. And here the first thing we need to remind ourselves of is that this trial of God's word by outward assault is nothing new. God's word has been a tried word in all ages. There never has been a time in history when it has not had to encounter fierce and persistent opposition. If, then, we see unbelief lifting up its head in many directions in these latter days, we need not be perplexed and dismayed, as if some strange thing had happened to us. It lies in the nature of things, and is God's will that it should be so. It is part of the fiery trial of our faith. 1 Peter 1 verse 7 and the chief way by which the imperishable truth of God's word is made manifest. People are astonished that if Christianity be true, it should be impugned by multitudes as it is. They forget. In Isaiah's day, God declared that the stone he would lay in Zion as a sure foundation would be a tried stone. Isaiah 28, verse 16. God did not anticipate that this stone being planted there would remain there without being put to test or trial. It was not a stone which God was to lay, and no one dispute the laying of it. Not a stone that God was to lay, and no one refused to build upon it. Not a stone that God was to lay, and no one contest its right to be there. If it was a foundation stone, it was at the same time to be a tried stone, and in the trial was to be proved to be the stone of God's laying more clearly than ever. He who realizes this, the prophet says, will not make haste, will not readily be thrown into panic or anxiety, when new forms of opposition make their appearance. As the Apostle Peter gives the sense of the words, he will, quote, not be put to shame, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 16. This fact, that God's word has been a tried word in all ages, would admit of easy demonstration were this the place to trace its history and in it lies strong encouragement for our faith today. The Lord himself was continually met in the preaching of his gospel by the hostility and opposition of scribes and Pharisees, who thought, finally, they had got rid of him by condemning him to the cross, which proved to be his throne of empire. The ministry of the apostles was a continual experience of opposition and persecution. And what of after times? We are apt to think that in an age like ours, with its formidable new weapons of assault on revealed truth, the conflict of faith with unbelief is far keener and more deadly than in any previous time but this is largely due to lack of perspective. 
Does anyone, for example, who knows the conditions of the second century, think that the sceptical and subtle pagans of that age had not their eyes on all the weak points, or what they took to be the weak points, of our religion, when they wrote those books and satires, some of which still remain as clever and witty, relatively to their time, as anything in the artillery of unbelief to-day. The second century was, indeed, to an extent not always realized, an era of strenuous conflict for the truth. It was marked not only by the outward martyr conflict with paganism, and by the keen literary attacks just referred to, but by the all-pervading influences of a subtle oriental theosophy, which, had they prevailed, would speedily have dissipated historical Christianity into empty fantasies. The controversy with Gnosticism was largely a conflict about scripture. The scriptures were the direct object of attack. The Old Testament in its entirety as being, so it was held, the revelation of an inferior and immoral deity. The New Testament, in considerable part, and wholly as regarded its historical truth. This, too, in an age when the church was yet young and feeble, and its canon of scripture only yet in process of formation. When the era of pagan persecution closed, it was again with a determined effort to crush out the life of the church by compelling the surrender and destruction of its scriptures. Or glance at the Middle Ages, the latter part of which witnessed the attempt of the Roman church to suppress the reading and circulation of the Bible among the laity. It is customary to speak of these ages of the ascendancy of the church as the ages of faith, quote-unquote. But does anyone think that there was no skepticism in Europe as the result of that great outburst of learning and of new ideas that broke upon the world in that period? Dr. Lydon has justly said, It may fairly be questioned whether the publicly proclaimed unbelief of modern times is really more general or more pronounced than the secret but active and deeply penetrating skepticism which during considerable portions of the Middle Ages laid such hold upon the intellect of Europe." Unquote. The renaissance of paganism in the fifteenth century literally honeycombed Europe with new and bizarre forms of unbelief, while the church which should have resisted it was sunk in deadliest corruption. Yet in pious circles the study of God's word never wholly died out, and translations into the speech of the people were made and circulated, mostly secretly, in the chief European countries. Thus was prepared the way for the grand revival of the Reformation, 
flinging open once more the gates of the knowledge of Holy Scripture. And great was the joy with which the enfranchised church entered on its inheritance. But soon the sky was again clouded. Philosophy and science made rapid advances as the result of that very emancipation of the human intellect which the Reformation had fostered, and ere long the seeds of a new rationalism began to be sown in the bosom of the church, with effects disastrous to reverent faith in the scriptures. The eighteenth century was the peculiar era of this older rationalism in all the countries of Europe and in its various forms of a rampart deism in England, of Voltaireism in France, of the superficial rationalism of the Illumination in Germany. It ate into the vitals of these countries, and for a time made Christianity almost a name of mockery in cultivated circles. What religion was in England in this period may be learned from the often quoted passage from Bishop Butler's advertisement to his analogy of religion. It has come, he says, I know not how to be taken for granted by many persons that Christianity is not so much as a subject for inquiry, but that it is now at length discovered to be fictitious, and accordingly they treat it as if in the present age this were an agreed point among all people of discernment, and nothing remained but to set it up as a principal subject of mirth and ridicule, as it were, by way of reprisals, for its having so long interrupted the pleasures of the world. Unquote. Will it be said by the most pessimistic that there is anything like this among us today? On the contrary, we have today, I dare to say, more aggressive work on the part of the Christian church than almost in any previous age. The Church of Christ today, notwithstanding all these forces of unbelief we hear of around us, has more members, is circulating more Bibles, is doing more good, is extending itself more widely in the world, is cherishing in its heart more earnestly the dream of universal empire than at any previous period of its history. Only it is doing this on the ground of the old evangel, not on the ground of the new theories of religion and of the Bible. Let us thank God for it, and not be downcast. Part 2 In this connection, it is interesting to recall the causes which in these different ages, brought about the deliverance of the church from an enthralling skepticism and irreligion. The present age has abounding faith in scholarship. When a scholar speaks about the Bible, let no man peep or mutter. 
and I should assuredly be the last to seem to throw any slight on sound and accurate scholarship. Let scholars be fought by all means with the weapons of scholars. But it is very much to the point to observe that it has never been by learning, by philosophy, by science, by scholarship, that the church has been revived and saved in eras of great religious laxity and abounding infidelity. When Jesus introduced his religion into the world, he did not choose scholars, but humble, simple-minded men attached to himself by a living faith, and endued with power from on high to do it as witnesses to his words, works, and resurrection. Quote, the base things of the world and the things that are despised did God choose, yea, and the things that are not, that he might bring to naught the things that are. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. And what has been the verdict of history on this method? Has it not justified it in the most emphatic way? Surely it is the greatest thing we can say about these first disciples of Jesus, the most convincing testimony we can bear to their own greatness, that they had the eyes to see, that when the wise men of the world of that time were blinded and could not see, they had the power to discern something of the meaning, the importance, the world-wide significance of this great appearance in their midst, that they had the power to take in some degree the measure of that great spiritual movement which the heads of the people, the Caiaphases, Pilots, Scribes and Pharisees, Rabbis, were all blind to and could only set down to some passing spasm of superstition. They took in some degree the measure of the spiritual greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and saw something of what his person and work really meant for men, saw that there was laid in him the foundation of a great worldwide religion that bound up in him were hopes grand and glorious beyond expression for the individual and the race. This is their eternal title to honor. By means of it they became the instruments of a revolution which changed the face of the world. God hid it from the wise and prudent, but revealed it unto babes. Matthew 11, verse 25. So when we come to the later age of the Reformation, what brought the remedy for the unbelief and spiritual evils under which that age groaned? Not scholarship or science, but the discovery in Scripture and faithful proclamation of the living gospel of the grace of God by Luther and his fellow reformers, men who had felt its power in their own souls. And once more, what rescued the church from the torpor 
and death of the negation of the eighteenth century. The deliverance came not from philosophy or learning, not even from the works of able apologists like Butler, but from the tides of the spiritual revival that swept over Britain and were felt in other lands, under the preaching of such men as Whitefield and the Wesleys. This it was which gave evangelism the victory once more over indifference and unbelief, and breathed the new breath of life into society, which introduced the era of missions to the heathen, Bible diffusion, home evangelization, and the innumerable social reforms of the last century. It is to a like outpouring of the Spirit of God upon His church, and to the same divine energy manifesting itself in holy lives and practical work, far more than to learned confutations, however valuable these may be in their place, that we must look for the overthrow of the forms of unbelief that lift up their heads among us today. The owls vanish when the daylight reappears. Part 3. The assaults upon the Bible, which cause most anxiety at the present hour, it will be generally agreed, are those which come from the newer schools of Old and New Testament criticism, from a popular monistic philosophy, from evolutionary theories in science, and from the absorbing interest which has recently been displayed in the study of comparative religion and mythology. The two subjects which are most to the front are criticism and science, though signs are not wanting that the foremost role may soon be taken by the comparative study of religions. Of course it is recognized that mistakes may be made, and old controversies on all these subjects carry in them lessons to be wisely laid to heart by both the assailants and the defenders of the Bible. Voltaire was confident that Christianity would be overthrown by the discovery of the law of gravitation, and would not survive a century. Yet Sir Isaac Newton who discovered the law, was a humble Christian man. Strauss boldly affirmed that the Copernican system gave the death-blow to the Christian view of the world. But what Christian today feels his faith in the slightest degree affected by the discovery that the earth goes round the sun, and not the sun, as was once believed, round the earth? There were many vauntings that the Bible was discredited, and many shakings of heart on the part of believers in the Bible themselves, when geology made it certain that the world was immensely older than the six thousand years assigned to it since the creation by the current chronology. The saintly Cowper could poke his gentle satire at the geologists, Quote, some drill and bore the solid earth 
and from the strata there extract a register by which we learn that he who made it and revealed its date to Moses was mistaken in its age. Unquote. But few are troubled at the present time, or feel that even the days of Genesis are put in serious peril by the discovery through the same drilling and boring of the magnificent procession of the eons through which the work of creation actually extended. On the other hand, as we shall see by and by, science also has had to lay aside many extreme hypotheses, and abandon or modify theories which created or seemed to create difficulties in comparison with Scripture. One is taught by these things to avoid dogmatism, and wait patiently for the progress of discovery, when many things which present difficulty at a cruder stage of science will clear themselves up of their own accord. Yet there are limits, as everyone also must admit, set by the nature of the case to this process of conciliation. Because good Christian men once mistakenly contended for the inspiration of the Hebrew vowel points, it does not follow, as seems sometimes to be argued, that the most radical results of a destructive criticism are compatible with faith in the Bible's inspiration and authority. Because people once believed that the sun went round the earth, and shook their heads in alarm at geological discoveries of the age of the earth, it does not follow that spiritual religion, not to say Christian faith, can ever reconcile itself to a form of theory that declares mind to be a mere function of brain, denies free will, and pours scorn on belief in immortality. Because there are different views on evolution and creation, it does not follow that any and every account of the mode of man's physical and spiritual origin leaves intact the Bible doctrine of sin. There is need, I grant, for caution, and for wise and charitable discrimination between essentials and non-essentials in belief as in practice, but there are none the less great and vital issues between truth and error about the Bible which no sophistry can obscure and no juggling with words efface. End of section one.